This episode of Sauce of the Scary brought to you by Forge Nutrition. Go visit Kyle, Leah, and the Forge team at ForgeThroughTheFire.com. But for now, enjoy the show. Alright everybody, welcome to another episode of Saw Something Scary. I'm your host Derek Zoo, alongside me as always, Jeff Wright. Jeffrey, how are we doing this week, bud? I'm doing alright, man, except for that terrible movie we just watched. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Um, I'm, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it more here in just a little bit. Uh, let's break right down. We got a lot to cover this week, so let's start it out with everyone's favorite, favorite segment of the show. Jeff hates trailers. Jeffrey, I got four trailers for you this week. Want to know what your opinions are? I'm going to start kid-friendly and go from there. Okay. All right? So I saw, and I think you and I may have actually seen this in theaters, a uh, preview for Cars 3. Yeah, the like Lightning McQueen wreck. Yeah, the one that looks like Christopher Nolan directed it. Uh, Lightning McQueen sets out to prove to a new generation of racers that he's still the best race car in the world. Uh, Owen Wilson uh, is joined this uh, this time around by Nathan Fillion, Army Hammer, Kerry Washington. I'm not sure if they were in Cars 2 or not. Uh, I just figured since you have a plethora of kids that you've probably seen both of those. Do you know if, if if those are new additions to the to the franchise? I don't know. Okay, I have seen them all, but the only thing that I'm interested about in the next car sequel, beyond the fact that my kids will want to watch it until my eyes bleed, is that if there is a just God, <laughs> there will be no rascal flats involved in this project. How dare you! Life is a highway. And I want to ride it all night long. Do you know how heartbreaking it is to me that my kids will grow up thinking that's the version sure. of Life is a Highway? Yeah. It's so depressing. There's nothing I can do to unprogram that either. It's really bad. Um, are you a big Larry the Cable Guy fan as Toe Mater? I don't mind him. Yeah. I've seen it so much now, though, man. It's um, nothing's. There's no possibility that that movie can be enjoyable in any sense anymore. <laughs> I've just seen it so many times. Yeah. So I didn't, I, I said I don't mind him. I didn't mind him at first. Right. By the thousandth <laughs> viewing. Yeah. Uh, I hated all things, including cinema. Sure. So. Yeah, by that point, you just want to burn everything down. Exactly. Yeah, I don't blame you. All right. So I, I can't wait to get your review of Cars 3 whenever that comes out. It will sound like a lot of screaming. <laughs> and why, God? Why? Well, kill me now. Yeah, of course. So, all right. So, that's Cars 3. Being uh, a parent is actually awesome. <laughs> but that specific part of it is what we should do to people instead of having Guantanamo Bay. We should just give them like three and four-year-olds and two Disney movies. And they will come out and tell us whatever we want to know. What would What would the two Disney movies be? Is there a preference on it? The most aggravating... One of them's got to be Frozen, right? You know, it's hard for me to differentiate, Derek, because when I first watched Cars, I liked it. When I first watched Frozen, I liked it. Yeah. By the time I've seen it enough to like recount verbatim the uh, dialogue, there's nothing enjoyable. No True. movie's good. Uh, in fact, in order to preserve my enjoyment of Toy Story... I, I consciously choose to find other things to do when my kids want to watch it so that I can eventually come back to it with some sense of freshness. So I got nothing for you, man. It is one long uh, princess-voiced haze of pain and confusion when I think about Disney cinematic. 
All right, enough kid dog. This is a horror movie podcast. People didn't come here for Disney. <laughs> There's a real horror yeah. in watching Disney movies. Too, sure All right, so uh, new uh, new television series for The Tick. Oh, my gosh. Uh, starring Peter Serafinowicz. Let's see. He was also in Guardians of the Galaxy. He was the one in the trailers that, well, you hate trailers. <laughs> Man, I'm batting a thousand tonight. Uh, anyway, Google him. You'll see okay. who it is. But he's playing The Tick. And Jackie Earl Haley, most people know him from uh, Watchmen. And uh, Freddy Krueger, right? Freddy Krueger remake? Yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street. He's also been in the um, Preacher series on yeah. AMC. Seth Rogen produced, I think. Right. So he's he's playing a part in this. I'm not sure. It sounds like the villain. Just reading it for, off the IMDb page, which I was like, well, there you go. So uh, were you a uh, Patrick Warburton tick kind of guy? Yeah, I really like that. And I like the cartoon, too. Yeah. This is one of those where if I'm Peter, whatever his name is, I don't know that I take that gig. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to live up to there. That's kind of an iconic series. Yeah. I'll probably check it out, though, because I like the first two projects. Definitely. Um, I'm not sure where it's going to be on. Uh, I'm thinking Amazon, but I'm not for sure. So, But keep on the lookout for that. Uh, the Kingsman, The Gold Circle. Uh, when they're, uh, when they're Just the synopsis for that movie. When their headquarters are destroyed and the world is held hostage, the Kingsman's journey leads them to the discovery of an allied spy organization in the U.S., these two elite secret organizations must band together to defeat a common enemy. Uh, Taron Egerton returns as Eggsy. Did you watch the first one? I did not. Okay. I've been told it's a it's kind of a tale of two movies. Actually, the first half is more uh, spy movies send up, and then the last half becomes just uber violent. Yeah, uh, Quentin Tarantino style. Yeah. It. Um. I've watched it twice now. The first time I watched it, I wasn't. I wasn't prepared for it. Nobody, nobody told me. Everyone told me it was a good movie, but nobody told me like how violent it was, and I just wasn't ready for it. Um, the second time I watched, I enjoyed it. Um, Violence isn't a problem. This is the kind of movie I should have seen, but I just somehow in the course of life didn't. Here's here's my opinion based on the synopsis you just gave us. I don't think the name Eggsy is realistic, mm-hmm. but it strikes me as more realistic than Taron Egerton. Yeah, yeah, and that's the new drill name, Taron Egerton. Um, Eggsy is his nickname, by the way, in that. Um, it's going to star every British male actor known to man, I'm pretty sure. Well, then there won't be any good guys, because British dudes must be villains. Right. Um, so, what, what are you thinking? Kingsman, Girls, Girl Circle, you're going to watch it, you're going to skip it? I'd probably watch it. Okay. I think you can. I don't think you'll have to watch the first one to know what's going on in the second I'd probably watch the first one first. Okay. Fair enough. And then finally, the one that I think looks the best is a movie called Once Upon a Time in Venice. And the synopsis for that is a Los Angeles detective seeks out the ruthless gang that stole his dog. That is a thin premise. Yeah. Uh, but the actors attached here are pretty impressive. Yeah, man. Bruce Willis, Roman Reigns, Famke Jansen, and John Goodman. I'm kind of bummed that you made the Roman Reigns comment. Why? Because he looks just like Jason Momoa? That was really the only thing I was bringing to the table in this segment. Oh, I'm sorry. You, you robbed me. We We can redo this. I will say uh, Famke Jansen, uh-huh. I think, is way underrated. Yeah. Every time I see her on screen, I enjoy the performance, and I wish she got more work. I agree. It seems like ever since uh, ever since she got offed in the, in the Taken movies, people think she's really dead. She's not. What? No. Spoiler alert. Uh, sorry. Yes, Jeff, I completely agree. She should get more work. So, all right, so that's Jeff H. Trailers. What do you think? Once Upon a Time in Venice, you going to watch that? Red box it? Red box it? Yeah. The Tick, I will check out right away. 
Cars 3, I cannot avoid any more than I can avoid my eventual death. And, uh, yeah, I'll watch The Kingsman. Okay. That'll be my excuse to go back and watch the first one. Sure. Hey, before we leave movies as a subject, I want to run two things by you and also by anybody listening to this in case they're looking for movie recommendations. This week, I managed to fit into uh, scary movies that we're not going to record on the podcast. The first one is the 2016 Shut-In. It has Naomi Watts in it, which I don't know why. But I always see Naomi Watts and think, oh, this could probably be a good movie because she's a good actress. Mm-hmm. But she seems to pick terrible projects. Yeah, that's a good call. Um, it also has Oliver Platt in it. Generally uh, enjoy his work. I love Ollie Platt. He's a total of that guy. You know, yeah. when you see him in there, you're you're pleasantly surprised. He'll forever and always be Jimmy King to me. I will rule you! It also has Charlie Heaton in it from Stranger really? Things. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he plays... Uh, the stepson who uh, is set up to be the victim. Okay. So it is, it does not rise to the total of those parts. Sure. Goes for a trick ending. I would say the trick ending you need to pull is just not start the movie. <laughs> uh, avoid that one. So are you saying that we have our first dumpster fire of the week? It's dumpster fire. Okay. Now, I w- I'll say the opposite. If you thought about watching Shut In, you should stop and just instead watch Lavender. Okay. Also from 2016, it stars uh, Abby Cornish, Dermot Mulrooney, mm-hmm. and an actual acting part for Justin Long. Really? He's not there just playing a hipster. So the the setup to that is, and this is all in the first minute of the movie, so I don't think I'm giving anything away. There's a little girl in a farmhouse full of dead bodies. She's covered in blood holding a uh, razor blade, kind of cowering in the corner. And you spend the rest of the movie playing out... What led her to that point? Okay. So there is a bit of a, uh, what I think they intended to be a twist ending. You would see it coming a mile away. I saw it coming like 500 feet away. Okay. But other than that, it's a kind of a pleasant surprise. Oh, nice. Uh, sort of a slow burner. Okay. But well worth watching, particularly compared to Shut In. Okay. Two things on that. Let me get your opinion on it. Number one, Naomi Watts. Best role she's ever ever been, or best movie she's ever been in. Probably Mulholland Drive. You think so? I mean... Well, you, what would you say? Birdman. Gosh, that's hard to disagree with. Birdman's a better movie. Yeah. She probably has more to do. And if you've not seen it, particularly if you're someone who is uncomfortable with sort of explicit sexual content in the movie, Mulholland is not your movie. Yeah, definitely not. But she, in all the scenes where she's clothed, that I think in terms of performance, that's her peak. Okay. I'd rather watch Birdman. Sure. But yeah, I'd still go with Mulholland. I think that's I think that's accurate. I think that's probably her best performance. But I think Birdman's the best movie she's ever been in for sure. Uh, number two on that, uh, you mentioned Justin Long. Have you ever seen Tusk? That is the Kevin Smith. Loved Kevin Smith in the era of Clerks and Mallrats. Right. But as soon as he became famous, they gave him a Batman comic book series mm-hmm. called The Widening Geyer. I think okay. is how you pronounce it. It's awful. Really, and I haven't been able to think of him apart from that comic book series since. Okay. So, no, I didn't watch it as a protest against what he did to Batman. Fair enough. You should. Ah, it's the, uh, like some guys made himself into a walrus, right? Sort of, but not really. Yeah, I'll read the Wikipedia on it. Okay, that's fine. You should you should watch it, though. Why? It's it's very interesting. Interesting? Yeah. In the way that, like... It's not It's not a dumpster Human fire. centipede is interesting? No. Okay. No. Like, it's just, it's a very, it's it's quirky... And it's uh, it's different, but I, I enjoyed it. Okay. There was a project he did um, about a fundamentalist preacher. Mm-hmm. Did you see this come down the wire? Mm-mm. A couple of years ago, he did one about fundamentalism, fundamentalist preachers, a horror movie. Okay. 
and I really wanted to watch it. Yeah. Kind of hits me where I live. But again, it was him. Yeah. And he did that to Batman. So I was out. You know, Batman can weather all storms. Yeah, man. But it, you know, it'd be like if, if somebody attempted to slap one of my kids, even if they're not successful, I'm still going to hold it against them. That's walling talk right there. All right. I just wanted to know because I think, I think you would enjoy Tusk. Okay. Think probably know. I'll probably check it out on the strength of your recommendation. I'll just tell myself he's not involved. Yeah, I was going to say, him. I was going to say, just say that, you know, like Justin Long directed it. There you go. He's not in the movie at all. He's just, he's just the director. Well, good. Yeah. So, all right. So that's Jeff hates trailers and Jeff hates horror movies. <laughs> Do not hate horror movies. Don't even hate Kevin Smith movies. Hate his comics and it's made, it's toxified my experience of all his movies. That's understandable. He's your M. Night Shyamalan. Now we, now we know. Now we know. <laughs> Moving Protest on. Protest that there's a there's a substantial quality difference there. Yeah. So we were going to uh, we we're going to do Black Christmas this week, and then uh, we got the tragic news today that uh, Jonathan Demi passed away at the age of seventy three uh, due to complications from esophageal cancer and heart disease. Doesn't that sound terrible? Yeah. That sounds like an awful combination. Yeah. He uh, he he announced to. Uh, he announced publicly that he had been diagnosed with cancer in 2015. So it's just a, been a fight that he's been going through for a while. Um, and once we heard about Jonathan's passing, we uh, we decided to uh, course correct, and we're we're doing uh, Silence of the Lambs this week. And um, before we get into Silence of the Lambs, I wanted to talk a little bit about Jonathan Demi. I did some research on him today. Uh, he's done a lot of I mean, he's done amazing movies through you know several decades of of time, but there's also some really cool things that he's done that I had no idea about. So I'm just going to share them with you really quick. Yeah, man, lay down me. Uh, Bruce Weber of the New York Times wrote his uh, tributers obituary or whatever in the Times today, and there was a really cool paragraph in it that I thought kind of sums him up. It says, "A personable man with a curiosity gene and the what comes next instinct of someone who who likes to both hear and tell stories." Mr. Demi had a good one of his own. A Mr. Deeds kind of tale in which he wandered into good fortune and took advantage of it. A former movie publicist, he had an apprenticeship in low-budget B-movies with producer Roger Corman before uh, turning director. Um, his first breakout movie was Swing Shift with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. I had never heard of it until today, but I think it was made It was made in the early uh, 80s. He made uh, Married to the Mob with Michelle Pfeiffer and Alec Baldwin. Um, Janet Maslin of the New York Times, wrote in her review of Married to the Mob, Jonathan Demme is the American cinema's king of amusing artifacts, a blinding bric-a-brac, the junkiest of jewelry, costumes so frightening that they take your breath away. Mr. Demme may joke, but he's also capable of suggesting that the very fabric of American life may be woven of such things, and that it takes a merry and adventurous spirit to make the most of them. Um, his significant movies, of course, uh, the one we're talking about today, Silence of the Lambs, but then he, he followed up Silence of the Lambs with Philadelphia. Like, that's a great one-two combination, you know? Um, he did the Manchurian Candidate remake with Denzel and Leif Schreiber. Uh, he did Married to the Mob. He did Rachel Getting Married, which was a really popular uh, movie in the late 2000s. I think Anne Hathaway got an Oscar nomination from it. Yeah, still kind of widely considered her best role. Yeah. Um, the cool thing that I saw today that I, I didn't know two, two things about him. The last thing of significance that he did was he directed Justin Timberlake's Netflix special, uh, Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids. Uh, and uh, JT actually left a really touching tribute to him on his Instagram, had a picture of the two of them embracing and this long uh, tribute to him. Uh, 
Demi talks about uh, his love for music. He says, music was my first love. Movies came second. Uh, in a 1988 interview with Premier Magazine, he said, I grew up with rock and roll, literally. The first rock song I remember was Shaboom. And since then, I never stopped obsessing on at least something. Uh, come to find out, he's also directed concerts for Neil Young. He's directed like three Neil Young concerts, uh, Springsteen and Kenny Chesney, which Kenny Chesney seems kind of weird out of like Timberlake, Neil Young. Yeah. Um, but then the coolest thing to me, man, he directed three episodes of SNL. So for you SNL buffs like myself, uh, he directed the, uh, the 1985, or excuse me, the November 15th, 1980 episode with Elliot Gould with musical guest C- Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Yeah. My favorite band from the 80s. Definitely. Uh, November 23rd, 1985, I was a wee six, uh, six weeks old by this point. Pee Wee Herman with musical guest Queen Ida and the Bond Temps Zydeco Band. It's actually called Zydeco. I know that because I love New Orleans culture. Nice. Uh, I'm probably going to go Google <clears throat> Queen Ida and the Bond Tom Zydeco Band because that sounds like something I'd be into. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, his final episode that he did was on January 18th, 1986, uh, Harry Dean Stanton host with the musical guest, The Replacements. Hey, a band I heard of. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that, I, I had no idea about that, man, and, and just digged in, and I was like, holy smokes, that's that's really cool. Well, um, when you um, when you texted me and said, hey, this guy died, we ought to look at Silence of the Lambs, I wasn't familiar with him at all, so I did what uh, you may have done, and I just got on IMDb and started looking around, and that's what leapt out immediately, that this guy had such a relationship to music. Um, the Manchurian Candidate is the kind of movie I should have seen. Mm-hmm. Um being a married man, I would have thought I'd have seen Rachel getting married or whatever. But for me, his his film work basically begins with Silence of the Lamb and ends with Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. But it's it's startling how much time he spent with music. And I plan to kind of go track some of those things down and look at them. Yeah, he did a really cool... The last thing that I remember watching in Jonathan Demme's, he did a really cool movie uh, with Meryl Streep called Ricky and the Flash, I think. Hmm. Let me look that up real quick. Ricky and the Flash. Yeah, I was right. Um, yeah, so he did, the last thing he did was 2000, or the last thing of significance besides the Justin Timberlake thing, the last thing I saw was Ricky and the Flash had Meryl Streep in it where she was like an aging rock star and she was trying to reconnect with her children. And it had like a pretty good cast, like Meryl Streep's in it, Kevin Klein's in it, um, the guy that plays Bucky in the Captain America, Captain America movies is in it, her daughter's in it, Meryl Streep's daughter, uh, Mimi Gummer. Is in it. Rick Springfield's in it. Like, there's there's a bunch of really cool people in this movie, and it was a decent movie. Like, it's not gonna it's not gonna win awards or you know break box office records or anything, but it was a fun little like kick your shoes off and ninety minute popcorn movie. Um, well, based on what we know from his love of music from his resume, um, it sounds like just the kind of project that you know he'd want towards the end of his run. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and you know looking. Obviously, most people, when they pass away, you don't hear anything bad about them. You know, everyone everyone wants, wants to jump in and talk about their loving tributes and things like that. But I, I saw I saw some cool things on Twitter, and I also got three um, three comments from from people that I think that he helped their careers uh, leaps and bounds. So I just thought I'd, I'd read those off to you as well. Uh, start with uh, Lin Manuel Miranda, the writer creator of Hamilton, said about Demi, uh, got about the loss of Jonathan Demi. Grateful to be one of the many blessed by his kindness and advice over the years. Uh, Paul Feig, uh, director, said just heard of Jonathan Demi's past. I can't process. He's a hero, an artist, an example, a goal, a visionary, a pinnacle, and a master. R.I.P. Uh, Stephen King, deeply sad to hear my friend, neighbor, and colleague Jonathan Demme has passed on. He was one of the real good guys. I miss you. Uh, Ron Howard said Jonathan Demme was a great artist, humanitarian, activist, 
warm, encouraging colleague. I've known very few like him. He will be missed. Uh, one of my personal favorites, Mike Berbiglia, said often on tour, I'll watch Jonathan Demme's Heart of Gold to remind me of what performance is about. Demme's one-of-a-kind one of filmmaker. And then um, Tom Hanks, who um, won his Oscar from Philadelphia, or one of his Oscars from Philadelphia, said Jonathan taught us how big a heart a person can have and how it will guide how we live and what we do for a living. He was the grandest of men. Uh, Jody Foster says, I'm heartbroken to lose a friend, a mentor, a guy so singular and dynamic you'd have to design a hurricane to contain him. Uh, Jonathan was as quirky as his comedies and as deep as his dramas. He was pure energy, the unstoppable cheerleader for anyone creative. Just as passionate about music as he was about art, he was and will always be a champion of the soul. JD, most beloved, something wild, brother of love, director of the Lambs. Love that guy. I love him so much. And then Anthony Hopkins, uh, who of course played Hannibal Lecter, says, I'm really shocked and very sad to hear about Jonathan's passing. He was one of the best and a really nice guy as well as who had such a great spirit. My condolences to his family. Uh, it sucks, man, that people have to die in order for you to really realize how amazing that they were. Yeah, it's even kind of, I feel like, worse in the sense that it, he had to die for me to get to hear about him. I mean, that kind of praise right there is not the stuff your publicist trots out right. on your behalf. Yeah, I mean, these are people who are deeply affected by this guy's presence in their life. I'd literally never heard of him, and I'm a pretty... Uh, active fan of cinema mm -hmm. uh, up until he passed away. And I read that and I go, I've really got to spend some time with this guy's work. It, yeah. it, it's just a shame that it has to come after he dies. Yeah, it, um, I was I was pretty familiar with Jonathan Demme. Uh, and when I heard about it, I was, I was uh, you know, obviously upset about it. But, man, I had, I had no idea of his body of work. You know, I knew of Philadelphia and I knew of Signs of the Lambs. Um, but I, I had no idea just how vast... It was, and so rest in peace, Jonathan Demi, um, passed away again at the age of 73 today. So in honor of him, we are going to be talking about the 1991 classic, and boy, brother, do I mean classic, Silence of the Lambs. So let's talk about some really fun facts about this movie and about the process of making this movie. Um, first one right off the bat, man, the rights to Hannibal Lecter were given away for free. Yeah, I, I actually am familiar with this, and I, I'm familiar with it because it goes under the moniker of the Dino De Laurentiis rule. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're not familiar, listener, Derek can do a good job explaining it to you right now. Contrary to popular belief, Hannibal Lecter doesn't first appear in cinema in Silence of the Lambs. Uh, he's actually in the Michael Mann-directed movie Manhunter in 1986 uh, that was, uh, of course, based off of Thomas Harris's 1981 novel Red Dragon. Still, my favorite novel of the uh, of the lecture series. Of the lecture series. Okay, that's that's strong. But sure. I love the the guy trying to turn into the Red Dragon. Yeah, and the connection to the Old World. So yeah. Uh, so that was the that was the first one uh, we've talked about before on the podcast. Brian Cox played Hannibal Lecter in that movie. Uh, Manhunter barely made half of its budget back at the box office. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis just decided, you know what? All right, screw it. If it's not gonna if it's not gonna be a moneymaker, I'll just give the rights away. Uh, I have read that he did so concluding uh, previously that Lecter would never be a compelling box office character. Isn't that crazy? Talk about missing the mark. Yeah, man. yeah. And, and uh, De Laurentiis has made a bunch of money since then from, from that. Um, they, they, were, they were big producers on the, uh, on the Hannibal show oh, for okay. NBC. Okay. So I guess that they – I'm not sure how it works here, but I think that they just gave the rights up to Signs of the Lambs. 
And then when that became a big thing, then De Laurentiis was like, okay, we got to make Hannibal. The second Lecter movie, obviously Silence of the Lambs, wound up making $272.7 million, which is about $264 million more than the first. A slight uptick. Yeah, just a little bit better off. Uh, here's one that I didn't know until today. Gene Hackman was originally going to star and direct in it. Look, no disrespect to the hack. Right. But, uh, man, what a different film we'd be talking about. Yeah. If we'd be talking about it. Right, yeah, there's a good chance that we wouldn't be talking about it at all. Uh, Hackman and Orion Pictures split the $500,000 needed to purchase the movie rights to the book. Uh, but then Hackman do- dropped out days after he watched clips of himself from the 1989 Oscars as FBI agent Rupert Anderson in Alan Parker's Mississippi Burning. He said he didn't want to follow up a dark role with an even more unlikable character. Oh, that's so interesting to me. I've never seen Mississippi Burning. Have you seen that? I haven't. It makes me feel like I need to go back and watch it. Yeah. I love FBI kind of procedurals yeah. and stuff like that. So uh, that little bit is going to affect my movie watching. Yeah, it's definitely one that I'm going to I'm going to backtrack on and watch. When you think Clary Starling, who do you think of? Oh, I think of Jodie Foster. Right. Just uh, I mean, just right there from the beginning. Um, Demi wasn't convinced that she could pull it off the role. Jodie Foster had read the book and began actively seeking the part, but Demi thought that she, even though I think she had just come off of like an Oscar-winning role too in another movie, I forget what the movie was, but Demi didn't think that she would be good enough. He wanted Married to the Mob co-star Michelle Pfeiffer. He thought that you know he and Michelle had a good working relationship together. Thought that they would be really uh, good. She would be really good in this. Uh, Pfeiffer obviously turns the role down saying that it was a difficult decision, uh, but I got nervous about the subject matter. How different would this movie have been? Because, uh, I mean, think about it. Michelle Pfeiffer was on a really good role back then. Would that have affected her? Pl- well, I, I don't guess it would have, but I, I don't guess it would have affected her playing Catwoman in Batman Returns. Cause, but, I mean, they, they came out, what, like a year apart? Mm-hmm. Somewhere through there? You know, for me, I really like Michelle Pfeiffer's work, and I want to say that as an actress, she has the chops to do this role. But the thing that I don't think she had compared to Foster is that sense of being new, fresh. I mean, I realize Foster had done work that had been acclaimed. But so much of what's important about uh, Starling's character here is that you sense her to be the greenhorn mm-hmm. that Lecter sort of pegs her as and manipulates her as. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she navigates that movie uh, with her superiors and whatnot. I don't know if Michelle Pfeiffer... Uh, could have done that because your sense of Michelle Pfeiffer, even if it's not true chronologically, I've not looked it up, but your sense of Michelle Pfeiffer back then was that she was a more established, mature actor. Even if, I, again, my sense of her is that she's an older actress than Foster was. But even if that's not quite true, uh, you still get the sense of like, I know Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. Foster was still fresh. Yeah. yeah that's, that's actually a really good point um, because you go into this, you go into this movie without any baggage of Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah, that's a really good point. I know that you see it here on the sheet. But it blew my mind that the first uh, first person that Jonathan Demme wanted to play Hannibal Lecter was James Bond himself, Sean Connery. That's why I think it couldn't work. Yeah. I, I basically know Sean Connery. I met him in the Indiana Jones movie. Right. And he, Junior. Was, he was already kind of the, the character that SNL played him on, Celebrity Jeopardy. So I just cannot picture a scene-chewing Sean Connery yeah. pulling off... Uh, what is a powerful, but but really kind of understated in performance, not an impact, but an understated performance from Hannibal Lecter. He's a subtle, he's like a scalpel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sean Connery, at least by the time I met him, would be more like a sledgehammer. But the lamb still calls you, Connerish. <laughs> I just couldn't. It would, it would become a farce. <laughs> 
Agent Starling, what happened with Mix? Uh, he called the script revolting, eh? Yeah, turned it down, said it was revolting, and then uh, Demi Demi offered it, or considered Derek Jacoby, but the biggest one that I saw, he considered Daniel Day-Lewis. That's the one Who I would have eaten see. somebody? That's <laughs> That is exactly right. He's such a method actor. He would have eaten one of his co-stars. Has anybody seen the key grip today? Is anybody... Hey, Dan, didn't he go out with you last night? No, I have no idea where he is. Uh, I would love to see Daniel Day-Lewis try this. Oh, man. Uh, I'm not saying I want him more than Anthony Hopkins, but I want to travel to the parallel universe where he played this role. Yeah. Uh, because, man, that guy, as we're joking about... Gets into roles the way nobody else does. I have no doubts he could have given an incredible performance. Oh, yeah. He would have knocked it out of the park. But Anthony Hopkins, again, I mean, when you think Hannibal Lecter, you think Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, you can't argue with perfection. Um, largely based on his performance from The Elephant Man. Hmm. And Hopkins went to Demi and he said, hey, I just got to know. I mean, my performance in The Elephant Man, I was a doctor, but he was a good man. And Demi said, Hannibal Lecter is a good man, too. Oh. He's a good man wrapped inside an insane mind. <sighs> man, that's one I, I'll need to chew on that one. It would explain how he does take a legitimate, if corrupting, fatherly influence in Sterling's life. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I think that it's it's really significant in the Hannibal television series that I, I beg you to go watch. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I said on a previous uh, episode that Mads Mikkelsen is a better Hannibal Lecter than Anthony Hopkins. I, I will apologize and backtrack on that statement after rewatching this movie, but he's he's really, really, really good. Um, if there was anybody that could follow in Hopkins' footsteps, it's Mads Mikkelsen. He he spins it a different way, but it's really, really good. Hey, kudos for him for having the guts to try. It. Absolutely. Yeah, I would have told my agent, what are you thinking? Yeah. And I think that that's kind of what a lot of people thought. It's kind of like the Heath Ledger Joker thing, right? Mm. Like everyone thought Jack was so great. Now here comes Heath. What are we doing? Sure. And then he knocks it out of the park. I think the same thing with Mads Mikkelsen on that. Um, so I, we talked about it before. I told you before we started recording that Hopkins based the performance of Hannibal Lecter on three different things. And so I'm going to tell them to you right now. Uh, an author, Truman Capote. An actress, Catherine Hepburn. And a computer, Hal, from 2001 A Space Odyssey. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Like, I know all three of those things. But it seems just as credible to me that you'd said he based his performance on spaghetti, the number seven, <laughs> and the color brown. Like, I, what? So, here's, uh, let me find it. Dang, Bobby. Okay. Uh, Hopkins bases the voice on a mixture of Capote and Catherine Hepburn. Okay. But he said that he saw Lecter as similar to Hal. He's a highly complex, highly intelligent, highly logical killing machine who seems to know everything going on around him. And there's okay. even there's even a point where, if you'll notice in the movie, where Jonathan Demme, the majority of the time that Hannibal is talking in this movie, he's talking into the camera lens. Like he almost knows that it's there. Hmm. He breaks fourth wall. Yeah. He's Deadpool. He is Deadpool. Uh, it was Hopkins' idea for Lecter to wear all white. His theory was that people who already have a fear of doctors and dentists uh, who wear white on the job. So when they, they wanted to put him in that orange jumpsuit through the entire thing, and he was like, no, 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 uh, especially in that cage when they when they get to Tennessee. He said, no, put me in white. People just have a kind of fear of doctors and dentists and stuff, and if I'm in all white, that's what they're going to think of. Do we even need to put spoiler alert in this? I mean, if you haven't seen The Silence of the Lambs from 1991, it's not our fault. No. 
Yeah. It's a 26-year-old movie. Yeah. So where you you referenced the scene where he's kept in this huge bird cage in basically a ballroom. Right. Uh, as they consider transferring him to a, a, a location he'd prefer in exchange for information. That white thing, I don't know about that point. Like, I've never seen one of my doctors or dentists and thought uh, Hannibal Lecter, never thought fear. But it's wonderful in the contrast of all the blood. Yeah. You have this stark white, uh, not just outfit, but he, his fleshly power is stark white. And the blood stands out so viscerally and vibrantly. So, you know, maybe his motivation I'm not completely on board with, but the effect... Beautiful. I understand it because people do have a fear of the doctor. People sure. do have a fear of dentists. So I could I could see where he would come into play on that. Another interesting tidbit I saw, Scott Glenn, who uh, who plays Jack Crawford. Uh, he was researching his role with John Douglas, who is an FBI profiler that Crawford was based on. Uh, he was giving Glenn a tour of the FBI Behavioral Science Unit in uh, Quantico, Virginia. So they're sitting there talking about some things, and I think Scott said something to the effect of, okay, well, this seems pretty normal. And Douglas said, oh, well, if you want the real truth, let me li- uh, let me li- let you listen to these tapes. And they're serial killers uh, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, and they're talking about uh, raping and torturing a 16-year-old girl. I'm not sure if it was caught on tape or if they're talking about it. But Douglas lets Scott Glenn listen to these. Glenn gets so uh, caught up that he walks out in tears about a minute into it and and turns to now being favorable for the death penalty. Hmm. Like that's how jarred he was after this, after after doing this research that now his his views on, um, you know, on the death penalty have changed. It's a dark world to live in, man. Yeah, man. Um, just one note for... Listeners, if those names sound familiar, uh, our previous episode where we talked about um, kind of finding out who Eugene was supposed to be in Behind the Mask, and I mistakenly thought that the creative uh, genius behind that was the Toolbox Murderers rather than the uh, 70s slasher film The Toolbox Murder. Uh, the, the Toolbox Murderers, the serial killers known as the Toolbox Murderers, are in fact Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. There we go. Everything ties together. Mm-hmm. Buffalo Bill was based on three real serial killers. Ted Bundy, Gary M. Heidnick, and Ed Gein. Uh, Ed Gein, known as the Butcher of Plainfield. That seems completely uh, obvious to me. This uh, Buffalo Bill is, in many sick and disturbing ways, obviously similar to Ed Gein. Who, yeah. I, I'm not sure, what to what degree are you interested in serial killers? Uh, pretty, pretty fair. Yeah, I've done numerous deep dives on Wikipedia with that, and Gein is such uh, an important figure in horror. He inspired Leatherface, uh, Norman Bates, Mm -hmm. and you just go on and on. This guy really lodged in the collective unconscious or conscious uh, and has given us a lot of horror, and I see it all over Buffalo Bill. Yeah. Um, So Gein exhumed corpses from local graveyards, fashioned trophies and keepsakes from their bones and skin. Uh, he only confessed to two murders, uh, one of tabby, tavern owner Mary Hogan and then another one of Plainfield hardware store owner Bernice Ward, Warden. Excuse me, easy for me to say. Um, he was initially found unfit to stand trial and confined to a mental health facility. In 1968, he was found guilty but legally insane of the murder of Warden and was rem, uh, remanded to psychiatric institutions. He died at the Mendota Mental Health Institute of Cancer-Induced Liver and Respiratory Failure at the age of 77. 
Uh, he's now buried next to his family in the Plainfield Cemetery in a now unmarked grave. Yeah, I mean, he he did what Buffalo Bill did. He took skin and he put it in sewing machines. And that that really happened in the real world has a lot to say about the kind of uh, uh, common state of humanity. That yeah. guy was a twisted dude. Um, Gary Heidnick was an American murderer who kidnapped, tortured, and raped six women. Held them prisoner in his basement. So there's another Buffalo Bill mm-hmm. trademark there in Philadelphia. Uh, he was sentenced to death and was executed by lethal injection on January 1999. So six kidnapped, two killed in between uh, March of 1986, or excuse me, November of 1986 and March of 1987. Uh, he was apprehended March 24th, 1987. Yeah, I actually hadn't heard of him, but I see what you're talking about. Yeah. It, it puts the lotion on its skin while it's sitting down in the hole. Yeah. Uh, and then Ted Bundy. Most people know about Ted Bundy, but if they don't, Jeff, uh, fill us in on who Ted Bundy was. Ted Bundy was an American serial killer, uh, kidnapper, rapist, burglar, necrophile. Um, he assaulted and killed young women during the 70s, possibly earlier. Right before he was executed, he confessed to 30 homicides covering seven states between 1974 and 78. We still don't really know, though, how high his body total really is. Bundy sticks out to me because of his reputation as being handsome and charismatic and very uh, skillful in his predatory um, moves to take advantage of his victims. Now, there's there's stories of him. I can't remember if he was if he wore a cast like uh, Buffalo Bill does when we first meet him in this movie, or if he was on crutches. But he used some pretense of disability to get young women into his vicinity to to prey upon them. The thing about uh, Bundy that doesn't seem to line up is that he was apparently a world-class charmer. You don't get that sense from yeah, Buffalo Bill. But definitely not. He was known to mutilate the bodies of his victims um, in ways that are just absolutely disturbing. He was uh, incarcerated in Utah in 1975. Eventually, it just started coming out more and more how many crimes and homicides he'd been involved in. So uh, he made some attempts at escaping. Eventually, Received three death sentences and two separate trials for killings he committed in Florida. Ended up dying in the electric chair in Florida at Rayford Prison. Uh, his biographer, Ann Rule, described him as a sadistic sociopath who took pleasure from another human's pain and the control he had over his victims to the point of death and even after. He once called himself the most cold-hearted SOB you'll ever meet. And Polly Nelson, who was a member of his last defense team, agreed. Ted, she wrote, was the very definition of heartless evil. One of the uh, the interesting facts about Ted is that we have a lot of access to him. Mm-hmm. He gave interviews and whatnot. And uh, take this for, you know, with a grain of salt or however you want to. But he himself blamed his uh, development into the monster he became on uh, pornography consumption. Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Interesting. So that's, uh, that's Buffalo Bill, man. And I think, though, I mean, that's really... It's really kind of a good, he really is kind of a good conglomeration of all three of those people. Um, as you said, though, he's definitely not the charmer, but he's, he is sort of a little bit because, I mean, he does get that girl to help him. Prayed so, on young women. Yeah. Used a handicap. Yeah. Um, I don't want to be the kind of person who's asked to mix those. Sure. Into my own psyche sure. and then live as that character. Yeah. Um, I thought this was a cool little tidbit and a rare, and what was a rare act of cooperation at the time? Uh, the FBI allowed scenes to be filmed at the FBI Academy, Academy in Quantico. Some FBI staff members even acted in bit parts. Um, I guess that's become a bigger thing now. Um, let's talk about the two, the two, uh, 
actors that this really hinges on. You're talking Jodie Foster. You're talking Anthony Hopkins. Um, Anthony Hopkins, you and I, I, I told you before, before we started filming, um, it ranges. Some people say it's anywhere from 12 to 15 to 23 minutes. Uh, but Anthony Hopkins is in this movie a very, the movie runs for an hour and 59 minutes. He's in a very small part of it, but it feels like he's in a lot more. And anytime that he, for me, anytime that he's not on screen, I want him to be back on screen. It, it may be, Derek. I wonder if we got a different cut of this movie and he was there more. I, I, not that I think you're like deceived or anything, but I wonder if we would prefer that because there is something to less is more. And he is so powerful as the boogeyman in the shadows. Like he literally at one point is giving an interview to Clarice. He's in the shadows. You can't see him. You just see like a towel pop out of his mail slot. He, he's, that's sort of the theme of his entire uh, time in the movie. The one time that we really get him in all his glory is um, in that birdcage scene in the ballroom. That's still really brief. And even in that scene, part of the time he sits behind the screen. Mm-hmm. They want him lurking. And uh, it's hard for me to complain about that decision. Yeah, he he is, uh, regardless, he is terrifying every time he's on on screen. He's riveting. Yeah. You can't take your eyes off of him. I told you, he's he strikes me as the closest thing to a non-supernatural version of Dracula. Mm-hmm. The, the pasty flesh... The uh, incredible confidence, slick back hair, slick back hair, even right down to that. Uh, the just the constant threat of a momentary move into the most extreme violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a there's no wonder uh, that he has lasted so long in our cultural imagination. There's some stuff about this movie that doesn't hold up. You know, um, Foster's Wardrobe being one of those, but he uh, Hopkins playing this role. I think probably our grandkids, if they care about cinema, will be going back and, and talking about what a command performance. Yeah, I think so as well. Um, one of the coolest things that I've always I've always heard about this movie was when they first meet, when uh, Clarice and Hannibal first meet, and he starts mocking her accent, and that just a gas look that gets on Jodie Foster's face that was all real. She didn't know that Hopkins was going to do that, and so they, I mean, they get her visceral reaction to it. And um, says that Jody later went to Anthony and thanked him. It was like, yeah, that was a really good choice. Well, apparently there's several kind of master moves that are unexpected in this movie. You were telling me something about uh, a cast member dropping a wrench yeah. in the pivotal scene. Yeah. Tell our listeners about that. So uh, in the very last face-to-face scene between uh, Hannibal Lecter and Clarice, she's giving the uh, she's giving the story about saving the lambs. And at a very pivotal point in that, she goes, if I could just save one lamb. And you hear a small ding in the background. Apparently, a crew member dropped a wrench. And people were a little flustered about it, but she just stayed in character and she just kept going. And Jonathan Demme enjoyed it so much that he just let her roll with it until she was done. And, of course, if you've seen the movie, you know that she gets very emotional in that. And it's a really riveting piece of, of, uh, of acting. And as soon as it was over with, she was just like, what's going on? Like, I had a Christian Bale moment with uh, with the crew, which I, I mean, I would have too. I'd have done the exact same thing. Um, but you could just see, I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was Jonathan Demme. I don't know if he just, if he had that kind of rapport with his actors where he could get those performances out of them. Or, I mean, I think that Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins are both phenomenally talented. Or maybe it was just lightning in a bottle, you know, where everything comes together to make something really, really amazing. But... I think everyone was zoned in. 
everyone had points to prove and everyone wanted to make this the best that they could. And I mean, it's leaps and bounds better than any of the other Hannibal Lecter movies. And that is such a crucial scene to this movie. You basically care about her uh, and her relationship with Lecter based on that scene. He has cracked her open. He has quid pro quoed her into the corner where she has to open up about uh, her most intimate and formative experience. Um, if that scene goes sideways, I think we think of that movie very differently. Yeah, um, Hopkins is incredible. He carries the weight here. But if Foster can't rise to the moment in that particular interaction, this movie's greatly diminished that she was able to power through, which I'm, I've never been an actor. You have. I don't really know the cost to you in that moment, but I get the sense that it's incredibly distracting. And yet to carry on and deliver that kind of, uh, that kind of performance, it, it just raises my estimation of her to know that story. I mean, yeah. I, I've always liked Jodie Foster, but that takes her up a few more yeah. ticks because she kind of helped make the movie in that very moment. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a really amazing story, um, for somebody like me who's been on that side of the camera, but then also for, I mean, for, you know, for just anybody in particular that that's a fan of acting or a fan of movies or stuff, you hear something like that, um, and you're you're happy that she was rewarded with a Best Actress Oscar for it because she definitely deserved it. She totally deserved it. Did you go back and look at the other Oscar nominees that year? I did not. That's a fun project to do sometimes, yeah. and I think a lot of times, particularly with um, the Oscar for you know the best film, it's easy to second guess them. I can't imagine second guess giving her. I don't know what movies came out, mm-hmm. but I can't imagine a movie able to come out that year that would have had a performance that even uh, should be in the same kind of conversation as hers. Yeah, and here's some, here, since we're on Oscar talk, let's just go ahead and, and get to that. Um, here's two things that I thought were really cool. Um, the first one, this movie was released in January, okay? Uh, as we've talked about before, a lot of Oscar movies don't don't get January. They, they're in November, uh, December, things like that. So this was, no, this was in uh, November, excuse me, this was in January, which gives our shot in the dark to get out. This is also... Technically, the only horror film to ever win Best Picture. Well, that's a pretty high bar to set. If you have to be the Silence of the Lamb to win from that genre, we probably need to reevaluate how we think about what is required of a horror movie. But to bring it full circle, if anything's going to do it, it's going to be Mr. Peel's work and yeah, get out. Yeah, I agree. Um, so this is this movie was the winner of the Big Five Academy Awards: Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Film. There's only two other movies in the history of the Academy Awards that have done it. It's it happened one night and one who flew over the, or one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. So I mean, rare, rare company, but hard to argue with. Definitely. I mean, there's nothing there that uh, I think should be redressed. No, definitely. Um, just wanted to go through this. It's got a 95% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think makes it the second highest film that we've reviewed so far behind Get Out. Um, it's in AFI for everything. AFI 100 Years, it's number 65 in their 100 movies. Uh, for 100 Thrills, it was number 5. Hannibal Lecter is the number 1 villain. Clary Starling is number 6 in Heroes. Uh, Buffalo Bill is a nominated villain. Um, in the top 100 movie quotes, a census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. That sound effect right there, uh, by itself, pull off the, you know, strip off the fava beans and ate his liver. That sound effect by itself would be enough to last in your yeah uh, nightmares. Definitely, it got number twenty one. Um, I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. 
uh, was number, uh, was nominated. I wish that Love Ya Suit would have been in there because that's, that's my personal favorite. The, uh, having an old friend for dinner, it's a testimony to the guy who played the, uh, psychiatrist. Yeah. Antagonized Lecter. But that's the one time in my life I can say I was rooting for a cannibal. Yeah. You know, uh, I kind of wanted him to eat that dude. Yeah. Um, it, it was nominated for 100 Years of Film Scores. Uh, it made it was number 74 on the 10th anniversary edition of the 100 Movies. In 2015, Entertainment Weekly's 10, uh, 25th anniversary, it included Signs of Lamb in its list of 25 best movies made since the magazine's beginning. Hannibal Lecter, you'll find him on all sorts of villain uh, polls. He's usually number one or number two behind Darth Vader. Mm. So to think about that, man, here's a character that was in this movie for, what, a third of it? I think you told me, and you may have said this on the podcast already, 16 total minutes. Yeah. Well, I was I was trying to do research, and some people say 15. I read one that said like 24. Okay. But somewhere through there. But you're still looking at a two-hour movie, and you're looking anywhere from 16 to 24 minutes. It makes that kind of impression. It's really, really, uh, really cool, really amazing. Uh, Roger Ebert, uh, I thought this was really cool. I don't know I don't know how you felt, but when I was growing up, Siskel and Ebert were pretty, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, pretty important in my life. Uh, you know, they could make or break a movie. Now everyone, including us, uh, can talk about movies and, and have some kind of voice about it. But, uh, this was one of the, one of the few movies that, uh, they seem to disagree with on a really, uh, drastic basis. Gene Sisko, excuse me, Roger Ebert, uh, specifically mentioned the terrifying qualities of Hannibal Lecter. Uh, he later added the film to his list of the great movies, recognizing the film as a horror masterpiece alongside such classics as Nosferatu, Psycho and Halloween. However, the film is also notable for being one of two multi-academy award winners, with the other being Unforgiven, disapproved of by Eagle, or excuse me, by Ebert's colleague Gene Siskel. Writing for the Chicago Tribune, uh, Siskel said, "Foster's character, who is appealing, is dwarfed by the monster she is after. I'd rather see her work on another case." Look, I agree with Gene on that point. I'd I'd like to see this character in more stuff, but that's not a criticism. Yeah, that's an accolade. Yeah. Uh, it kind of boggles my mind that the actor who played Gum didn't do much more that kind of lasts in their minds the way that Hopkins and Foster have a resume that you just marvel over. That those guys are in there and they give co- compelling performances isn't a reason to despise the movie. It's a reason yeah. to celebrate it. I agree. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, when I was when I was doing the research on this, when I saw that quote from Siskel, I didn't take it as a criticism. Until I went back and reread the paragraph, and then I was like, "Oh, okay." Um, because in my opinion, I too would love to see Clarice do another another uh, case, but I would love to have her have Hannibal by her side with it too. You know, uh, from you know from the from the crypt or from the prison or wherever he was at. Um, you know, I think in some ways we do get that opportunity. Uh, I've mentioned before, I think that I'm a huge X Files fan, and I realize that part of why I like the X Files so much is that. Julian Anderson's character grows into who I think Foster's character would have grown into. And so I'm not saying she ends up with Fox Mulder, but I am saying a very competent, skilled, sophisticated uh, woman who is um, not a sidekick by any stretch of the imagination, but a partner who leads the way in her own right in investigations is just what I imagine for Foster's character in the future. And it's part of why I later came to love The X-Files. I want to talk to you a little bit about cinematography because yep. we've we've talked a lot about that. Um, I just I love the way that they that I just love the entire cinematography. The biggest one is where you've you've got the you've got the camera inside Lecter's cell and it's showing through the glass of Clarice, and then he pops up 
at a pivotal moment. And so you see his reflection and you see her and they're just side by side. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful shot. Well, the effect is sinister. It's that he is lurking and posing a danger to her. You and I know there's a um, plastic wall between the two of them. Right. But the the effect you get is, and based on what he was able to do with Miggs, uh, his, you know, neighbor in the cell next door, um, a plastic wall has never looked so thin sure. as in that moment when Lecter's face rises against Clarice's. Yeah. Um, I thought the cinematography was really compelling, too. And it makes me, it's another reason I want to go back and look at Demi's work again. I, I realize one of the reasons that I feel like uh, Lecter is such a powerful character is that when he's on camera, he's very often... Uh, part of a shot that's pulled in as tight to his face as it can get. They do a lot of tight face uh, shots with Foster as well. And there's even a scene where she's sorting some stuff out with a roommate later in the movie where it's tight against her face. But none so much as with Lecter. Lecter looms like a god mm-hmm. in the camera. And he's leering over everything. And I'm also, it makes me thankful that Hopkins was the one giving her a performance because the the... Twitches of his facial movements mean something when it's so uh, when it's writ so large. Yeah, and that that use of camera and drawing into him causes him to loom over the entire movie in a way where you and I come away marveling that he was only on screen for like twenty minutes. Yeah, he really is kind of the um, almost the creator of the universe in this whole thing because he's very omnipresent. Even when even when he's not on screen, people are talking about him. And he, he I mean, he again comes off uh, as a deity. He's in control the entire time. He's in control over the people ostensibly uh, keeping him in his cell. He's over. He's in control over the senator whose daughter is in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. He's certainly in control over the FBI and their movements. And the way that Demi set this movie up goes after that in a way that's not explicit. But man, it drives home the point so well. Yeah, I read a I read an article talking about the the camera shots and stuff where it said that the majority of the people who are talking to Starling are looking in the lens while Starling is looking off camera. And I thought that was a really interesting sure. way to do it because that makes it where um, basically you know you are you become you become Clarice Starling from that from that point. Well, and that makes complete sense because. Uh, you feel the danger of Lecter there, uh, that his kind of insanity mixed with sophistication and intelligence could possibly lead you into, um, corruption yourself. Yeah. And that's definitely what's happening with, uh, Starling's character there. She is, uh, afraid and yet drawn in. And that's basically your experience as the watcher. Yeah. Um, I, I saw this on IMDb, um, and I, w- I want to go back to it because I, I said something to you about it when we first started the movie. Um, while st- when studying the character he played, Anthony Hopkins noticed similar characteristics in reptiles. Hmm. Reptiles only blink when they want to, and they do it consciously. Therefore, in the movie, Hopkins only blinks in special moments and very consciously. I think I told you that, that I said that he doesn't blink at all, and then he blinked. Um, but just amazing uh, detail. On that. And again, that's the kind of thought that needs to be um, invested in playing a character who you're going to spend your time with him face to face, nose to nose. And I'm so thankful it was Hopkins who did that. Now, Foster does a very compelling version of that, too. Um, you find out about her internal turmoil 
between giving more of herself to this monster and being able to rescue the lamb. Yeah. Basically through her facial expressions. You see the conflict, you see the reserve, you see the choice to give herself over. All that happens with her cheeks, basically, and her brow. Yeah. And Foster does a really good job, too. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I'll, I'll bring it back to you. Uh, <laughs> this is what I do best. I'll bring it back, I'll bring it back to me for a second. Um, if, if you've seen um, the cinematic masterpiece that I was in, Bethlehem, um, you know, that, and if you haven't, it's available on YouTube. You can go to Bethlehem or BethlehemTheSeries.com uh, for that or go to uh, YouTube for it or go to my Facebook page, Derek Zoo Comedy. Anyway, um, you'll notice that there's a, there's a really cool pivotal scene to my character, Brian, where he's confronting Bobby and we're very, I'm very in his personal space and, and things like that. And the whole time that I was re, like, uh, running lines and, and trying to figure out that character and stuff, that's who I kind of based it off of was like, okay, this is, this guy, he, he might kill you, but he might also eat you or have sex with you. There is one particular line, and I'm sorry, I don't know off the top of my head, but basically there's one statement you make there that, that kind of drives all that home in one sentence. What was that line? Um, the one about the cake, probably. Is it where you tell, do you tell him that you will eat him or that you have eaten? Uh, talk, talks about, uh, Bobby talks about how cake, or excuse me, talk, Bobby talks about how prison was a cakewalk for uh-huh. Brian. And then Brian is standing in the doorway when this happens and he comes in and he says, uh, you know what we do to cake in prison? We all get around it and we just bang it. And then my character, Brian, uh, tells Bobby, you remind me of a big fat piece of cake. That's the one. That's and, the one. And so, yeah, in that moment, that's, that's my, it. that's my Hannibal Lecter moment for cousin Brian. I've never had the chance to tell that to anybody, but that's definitely what I was going for. Yeah. Well, so, well done. Memorable. Thanks, man. Thanks. Uh, here's something I wanted to throw at you because you're a Carpenter fan. Mm-hmm. John Carpenter declared his disappointment over the movie, mm. focusing so much on Clarice Star- Starling's character that he would have loved to direct this himself, making it much more frightening and gripping. I mean, I'm not going to argue with him that he can do that. I don't know that he would make a superior film. Yeah. I, he may be able to get me to like jump out of my skin a little bit more. But I don't know that he could leave me with more lasting dread. I mean, I love him, and I'm not going to doubt him. But uh, it, just, ta- it takes some real stones to say you could make a better version of this movie. Yeah, I just thought that was a real um, ballsy thing to say. Yeah, dude, that's super ballsy. For sure. Uh, so, anyway, wrapping up on things, man, uh, I wanted to get your opinion on this. And I would actually love to get the opinion of our listeners as well, because there's a lot of accusations of homophobia, transphobia, and sexism. In this movie, um, Silence of the Lambs was criticized by members of the LGBT community for its portrayal of Buffalo Bill as a bisexual and transsexual. Um, in response to the critiques, uh, Demi further uh, replied that Buffalo Bill wasn't a gay character. He was a tormented man who hated himself and wished he was a woman because that would have made him as far away from himself as possibly could be. Uh, Demi added that he came to realize that there's a tremendous absence of positive gay characters in movies doing this movie. Um, in a 1992 interview with Playboy magazine, Notable feminist and women's rights advocate Betty Frieden stated, I thought it was absolutely outrageous that The Silence of the Lambs won four Oscars. I'm not saying that the movie shouldn't have been shown. I'm not denying the movie was an artistic triumph, but it was about the evisceration, the skinning alive of women. This is not, this is what I find offensive, not the Playboy centerfold. Um, where do you fall on that? 
I'm not persuaded. Now, I want to own that I'm not a woman, and I'm not a member of the LGBTQ uh, community. So they're going to bring a perspective that I don't have. But when I look at how what when I look at what a movie or a story has to say about um, an issue like this, a hot button sort of identity issue, I want to take a look and see um, if it's presenting those things as something to be entertained by or to be horrified by, right? Mm-hmm. And I think those two criticisms are hard to justify from within the movie. So multiple times, um, Lecture states that, excuse me, multiple times Lecture and Foster state that what Jane Gum is is inconsistent with the transvestite uh, personality type. Lecture specifically says he thinks he's transgendered, but he's not, and that his uh, psychopathy is much more disturbed. So in that sentence, he says not only is that James Gum is not representative of that community, and then later, no, just prior to that, Foster says that diagnosing uh, Gum as a transvestite is not consistent with the di- uh, the diagnostic data because transvestites are not violent people; they're passive. And while nobody really, I think, wants to be characterized as passive, it's again in the movie saying. This dark, evil man is not part of this community. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I, I just don't buy that. And then in, in terms of the criticism about women, well, again, this there is no room for celebration of what Gum is doing. They don't make it um, sort of a subject of comedy. They're not light about it. Uh, even the, the whole, like, how to get his name, he likes to skin his humps, that's presented as something that is inappropriate. Right. Mm-hmm. And so this is a movie that records that there are uh, people in the world who do violence to women, but it rightly records it as something we should be shocked and appalled by. And so unless uh, the lady you quoted wants us to live in a world where art can never re- reflect reality, this is the right way to portray violence against women. Their bodies aren't left on screen to sort of exploit you basically got the one um autopsy scene but that's brief and you don't get the full body shot very often um you are sympathetic to the victims i just don't see how this can be misogynistic transphobic anything like that i thought again as a member who as someone who's not a member of that community i thought this is basically how i would want them to tell stories about people who do violence uh to either the reputation or the members of those two communities. Yeah, I, I agree full force with you on that. Um, and, and again, I mean, it's two, it's two white males. We probably don't have much room to, to really talk about it. But um, I, I definitely didn't get that part at all. But just sitting here thinking while you were talking, thinking about that and thinking about what Demi said about there's not a lot of positive gay characters. Do you think that's what drove him to make Philadelphia? I explicitly read someone today, just, you know, a lot of articles that yeah. come through. I picked a handful of them and read. Someone specifically suggested that Philadelphia was his apology letter to the uh, LGBTQ community. Man, um, dumpster fire to get out. What do you think? Get out. Yeah. I mean, right now, we should in this specific case, we should probably call get out as a descriptor, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. You know, I love get out, but you got to beat the man to be the man. That's true. And this film is the man. Yeah, for sure. Did we see something scary? Yeah, man. The kind yeah. of scary that you don't, you know, it's 1991. I saw that probably as 
a 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. I probably, you know, my mom loved horror movies, and she probably wouldn't have allowed me to watch that. I can't remember the first time I saw it, but I'm betting when she rented it, I played it when she wasn't watching. Yeah. Uh, as a 35-year-old guy, Hannibal Lecter still is fascinating and horrifying. Mm-hmm. I've definitely seen something scary, something scary that hangs around. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's It's not the jump scare. But it's something that'll terrify you at three o'clock at night. The uh, the scene where you see through the glass, uh, it's after Lecter has escaped, and the square jawed uh, police officer mm-hmm. has been filleted, mm-hmm. and he's been hung with a flag, uh, arms outstretched. That is my definition of a terrifying silhouette. And I didn't realize it till I watched it tonight. That that image, sort of the blurry image of an angel, yeah. Uh, leading into the horror of seeing how the angel was made. Uh, that's stuck right in my dark imagination. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I remember as a child watching him take out that IV and everything and take off the oxygen, uh, oxygen from his nose and sit up and rip that guy's f- face off of his body. Terrified me for weeks. That is such a great commentary on the slasher trope. You know, when they wheel him out in the mask to meet the senator, that is a better and more sophisticated version of Jason Voorhees. So, you know, that, that visceral visual impact. When he, uh, in the ambulance, when the guy's reporting on his vitals, and he, unbeknownst to the guy reporting, is busily unhooking himself and giving himself free motion, I've seen that in a thousand slasher movies. Yeah. But that's the most sophisticated yeah. and most powerful version of it. Yeah. So when he sets up and pulls that mask off, I have seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I've seen all the Friday the 13th movies. He's playing with the same raw material, no pun intended, but doing it in such a uh, skilled and sophisticated, to use that word a third time, it seems so apropos. Uh, he's doing it in such a skilled and sophisticated way that it's the uh, the pinnacle of the trope. Yeah. Did you catch where uh, Chilton was talking to Clarice about the nurse that Hannibal attacked and says uh, blood pressure never got, or his pulse never got over 85? And then when he's in the ambulance, they say his pulse is at 84 or blood pressure is at 84. No, I didn't catch yeah. that. That's that's another thing to Demi's credit. He builds little details into that movie uh, along those lines. You, um, you mentioned that very early on lecture. Uh, drops the name of the town. Yeah, Belvedere. Belvedere, where gum ends up being found. The other thing I noticed with that movie, I get a sense of how big a threat Lecter is by the way that people respond to him. So he comes off as basically Godzilla. Shock teams move in. People move very slowly in his presence. They're sort of the way you would behave if you're around a crocodile or a bear. Um, When... It came sort of clearly to my mind when, um, after he's escaped, they think he may be on top of the elevator car. Mm-hmm. And the SWAT team moves in like they're about to confront, again, Godzilla. And I realized they're helping me understand what a threat this guy is. And that's all stuff Demi's doing as a storyteller. So yeah. more power to him. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was great. Uh, this is one of my favorite movies. Sure. I've been excited. I knew that we would eventually get around to it. I hate that this is the reason why. Uh, but I'm I'm very glad that we did. It's it's always fun to revisit. Um, and I again I implore you, uh, you Jeff Wright, but also our our listeners, if you have not seen the series Hannibal, uh, it was three seasons. I think it was maybe ten episodes each, ten to twelve episodes each. It's phenomenal. Yeah. 
Um, and so I, I implore you to go watch that as well. Um, rest in peace, Jonathan Demi. Thank you so much for everything that you've given to us uh, from an artistic standpoint. And uh, you will be missed. Jeff Wright, where can they find you on social media? At Wright Jeff. You can find me at Derek Zoo. Uh, I can finally announce this, so that's pretty cool. Uh, to all of our Sparta Cookville uh, folk and in between, I am uh, headlining two shows at the Foglight Food House on Monday, May 15th at the inaugural Comedy at the Caney Fork. And uh, I'm very excited about that. You can get tickets by calling the Foglight Food House, which you can find their phone number by a quick Google or on their Facebook page. Um, if you want to come, and I, I hope that you do, this, these shows are going to sell out. Uh, we're at about half right now on the 7 o'clock and the 9 o'clock or the 9.15 is filling up fast as well. So get your reservations as quickly as possible. Um, this is, I think it's two and a half weeks out now anyway. Uh, this is going to be a big deal. We're going to have a lot of fun. And uh, I'm excited to bring live comedy back home to Sparta. There are few things more pleasant than a spring evening on the deck of the fog lot with a bowl of gumbo looking out over the railroad trestle that sits above the water. It's one of my favorite places to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, adding some uh, live comedy to that is about the only way to improve it. So uh, I hope that I'll be in the audience there. And I, if our, if our listeners are paying attention and able to get there, I think they will find themselves very happy that they have made that choice too. Make sure and come out for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Scary Podcasts. Our uh, Reddit is forward slash r forward slash saw something scary. And so that's where you can find us. Email us at saw something scary at gmail.com. Let us know what you want to what you want us to review. Talk to us. Uh, I, I love getting little Facebook messages and stuff like we have been getting, so that's awesome. Uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, we do have a special Saw Something Scary in the Ring planned pretty soon. Uh, probably in the next couple of weeks we'll be recording that and putting it out. We'll be talking to our buddy uh, Brian Campbell from CBS Sports about a career retrospective of The Undertaker. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited about fun. that. Um, and next week, Black Christmas, since we didn't get to do it this week. So we'll do Black Christmas and we'll try to put a bow on everything that is uh, Leslie Vernon. Um, apologies to Mark Wahlberg for not being able to use you this week in the show. Cannot believe it worked out that way. I know. It's terrible. Um, sure. Next week we will, we'll have you back in on that. Thank you guys so much for listening. Rate, review, subscribe us on iTunes. Uh, thanks to Ryan M. Brewer for our theme music. You can find him on Spotify and Pandora and on Twitter at Ryan M. Brewer. So, uh, go. He actually just, uh, he actually just released a, an album on Bandcamp. So go to Bandcamp. Search for Ryan and Brewer. It's like seven bucks. Put some shekels in that boy's pocket. All right. He's uber talented and he's, he's one of the best guys I know. So fill his pockets with a few dollars and get some amazing music out of it as well. Tune in next week for Black Christmas. Again, rest in peace, Jonathan Demi. Until next week. Bye bye, man. <laughs>